0: Welcome to The Conversation Weekly. I'm Nihal Al-Hadi in Toronto, Canada, and today I'm joined by our executive producer.
1: Hello, I'm Mend Mariwani, currently in Medellin, Colombia. I'm joining this episode today because we're looking back at the US-led invasion into Iraq in 2003, which took place 20 years ago. And as someone from Iraq, I wanted to take the opportunity and interview the people we spoke to myself. Nihal, how do you remember the U.S. invasion into Iraq on March 20th, 2003?
0: That one's an interesting one for me. Like you, I also have connections to that particular event. In 1991, when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait, I was living in Muscat, Oman, which was a port city that had a naval base there that U.S. and British military would stop at. And then listening to the rhetoric and the discourse around the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, it brought me back to that time, when there was this constant military presence that served as a reminder of a nearby conflict. How about you? What was it like for you being somebody of Iraqi origin?
1: So my family and I had actually left as a result of the dictatorship, we experienced torture and violence and hardship as a result of the dictatorship and of the UN sanctions. So when the US invaded in 2003, I was 13 years old, and I was in Germany with my family. I remember watching the bombs drop on Baghdad on TV, which was really traumatic. But at the same time, we also felt a glimpse of hope because we saw the end of the dictatorship.
0: That was 20 years ago when you were a child. How did that shape you?
1: I suppose initially my family and I did feel somewhat hopeful that maybe there could be some democratic change. But over the years, that optimism has totally faded.
0: So the US invaded Baghdad specifically. But how did that invasion impact the rest of the country?
1: Yeah, the invasion impacted people outside of Baghdad too. And so for this episode, I spoke to someone who's interviewed Iraqis from across the country about the way they experienced the moment of the invasion and the aftermath. And we'll also hear from someone who's studying the long-term impacts and how Iraqis are trying to heal today, 20 years onwards.
2: I was genuinely intrigued to know what was happening in the rest of the country when Iraq was getting hammered down with bombs and missiles. My name is Sana Morani. I am Associate Professor in Spatial Practice and Architecture at the University of Plymouth in the UK.
1: Sana is originally from Baghdad and fled Iraq shortly after the 2003 US invasion. As part of her research, she's focused on how people have sought to cope with the effects of war and trauma.
2: My main interest is how people cope how they manage to build spaces of comfort, of refuge, of safety for themselves, for for their families, how they start to respond and resist and cope, but also show their resilience. All of this I find incredibly creative and has a wealth of design practices that we architects, designers, urbanists could really take a look at and Learn lessons from for future crises, for future post-war, for all kinds and sorts, that we know that these things aren't going to stop. Mostly I have been focusing on this alongside trying to understand architecture not as a physical fixed kind of form of practice, but instead this incredibly fluid changes all the time changes to requirements and needs that gets pushed, dropped on people all of a sudden.
1: Sana has interviewed 15 people across Iraq about their personal story since the US invasion. The stories will be included in a book she's currently writing up, and it's coming out in 2024. She's also launching an exhibition at the London School of Economics in London in the UK, which is called Ruptured Domesticity, a visual narrative of domestic responses to war in Iraq for which she's created collages and maps that visualize the stories of the people she's interviewed. But before I asked her about the project, I wanted to know how she's experienced the invasion in 2003 herself.
2: We've been through several wars before, including the 1991, and before that, even the Iraq-Iran war. But this particular one seemed much more amplified. I lived to the west of the center of Baghdad, in an area called Amriya. An Amriya district is situated between the road that takes you to Baghdad airport and the road that takes you outside of Baghdad into Jordan through Abu Ghraib, known for the notorious prison story.
1: Abu Ghraib prison is located just outside of Baghdad, close to the city's key infrastructure, including the airport and water treatment plants. The prison gained international attention in 2004 after photographs were leaked showing US military personnel abusing and torturing detainees.
2: The problem with being situated in there is that we knew that we're in a hotspot area. This is going to hurt. And in fact, the first three days and nights, we had no sleep. We had prepared our downstairs living room to, with mattresses and blocked windows and done all of what every family did, in Baghdad in particular, expecting the worst, and the worst did come. I remember thinking we couldn't even count how many explosions and bombs and missiles had fallen because they were raining down. And with each one, the ground was shaking and the fear level was going higher and up. During that time, we knew that we can't stay in the house because we were really worried about what would happen to the area itself. But we also knew that this is potentially also one of the ways in into Baghdad. If they are really going to put troops on the ground, Abu Ghraib is a main route into Baghdad. So I knew that once they've managed to occupy the airport, this is going to be one of the routes that will absolutely be crushed. So we moved to my uncle's house in Al-Mansur area. And even though it's not that much further than where we were, it's slightly safer. And by that time, they had already with missiles destroyed, the electricity and telecommunication tower and so on and so forth, which are all situated in Mansour. So we knew that basically if we go there, there will be less noise at least, but also that being close to people you know and having that support, mental support, help with coping with that type of trauma.
1: I'm assuming that to some extent, this must have influenced your desire to look into this many years later as a researcher. Can you tell us a little bit about that story, about the journey from having experienced the invasion yourself, the US invasion, and then later on looking into it as something that you wanted to investigate?
2: So I mentioned the terrifying three days, and I remember that in my head, there were loads of things going on, including fear, sheer fear, but also the worry of when is this going to end? At the same time, I was drawing in my mind those mental maps that came to me, trying to understand, okay, which direction they're going to come, how are they going to invade the city, which routes they're going to take. And this is exactly the same way that I dealt and coped with when I left the country. I took the Abu Ghraib route towards Jordan because that was the only way out. All of the other routes were closed to us. All of the borders were closed to us. And Amman had only allowed that one route through Iraq. I remember thinking these mental maps had helped me not only cope, but also draw my way out of violence. Of war. And I also thought to myself if you start to capitalize on so many different mental maps that people have generated across multiple places, you will start to really, like a jigsaw puzzle, build up this idea and understanding of how collectively people who come under certain pressures within their environment. Can start to cope, build, engage with creating spaces of refuge and places to hide and to escape through routes, through mobility.
1: But it wasn't until 2016 that Sana began researching this.
2: I left Iraq and that was incredibly raw. My parents were still back home in Baghdad. They were still subjected to all kinds of including what happened during the sectarian violence until they left. So I couldn't engage with the subject until a few years ago when I wrote an article about the really incredibly ingenious ways that Iraqis had operated around the blast walls that were put in place during the years of the sectarian violence between areas around the green zone,
1: In 2006, three years after the US-led invasion, sectarian violence erupted between some of Iraq's ethnic and religious communities, including Shia and Sunni Muslims, Yazidis, Christians and Kurds. To some extent, this was a result of the new constitution that had been voted in that same year. Although the constitution of Iraq was intended to create a more democratic and representative government in the country, it also included provisions that exacerbated existing sectarian tensions and contributed to increased violence between Iraq's ethnic and religious communities until 2010. To try and mitigate the violence, the Iraqi government set up military checkpoints, barricades and security walls across the city.
2: And I was digging into a lot of research that looked at how These walls had divided cities across the world, different conflicts, different stories, different parts of the world. But I didn't see anything that looked similar to how the ones in Iraq were operating. They were changed and modified very quickly overnight for security. And Iraqis walk up to a very different landscape every single day. And they engaged with that landscape to have to go to work, to school, to taxi drivers were calling each other across walls to basically take people from one car to another because that car can't drive through this area anymore and so on and so forth. There is no reference that looks at this that is written by an Iraqi that is engaging with this incredible spatial practice. So I decided to write the book.
1: I suppose what you wanted to understand was really just like every person's creativity in a situation that is that deprives you so much of... Sorry, just a second. Sorry. Are you okay? It just... (laughs) Yeah, it's okay.
2: I was worried about this as well. I'm glad it's you and not me. (laughs) I'll get my mascara running down.
1: I knew it was going to happen at some point.
2: I love you for it. But yeah, that's... Yeah.
1: So let us talk about the people that you interviewed. You said that you've focused on 15 different people. We're going to be focusing on three of them, and they're situated in different parts of the country. Let's start with the first person.
2: So the first person that I would love to bring to discussion is Zainab Shukur. She is an assistant professor of sociology and political economy and climate change of Iraq and the MENA region at Sam Houston State University, Texas, USA. But 20 years ago, Zainab was a secondary school girl. She is the only child to her mom and dad. And she comes from a family who also lived in the same area as me, in Amriya. But she traveled across the country from the 80s when she was born to until she left the country. Because of her dad's work, so he's a radiologist. They have not seen any form of refuge in the country. And she's always sensed a hostility and violence from Iraq towards her because of the background of the family. Her father is a communist and was active for all of his time. He refused to engage with the Ba'ath party or join the Ba'ath party. So they were always subjected to political harassment back in those days during the regime.
1: The Iraqi Ba'ath party came to power in 1968 before Saddam Hussein assumed power as president in 1976 in a military coup. Saddam Hussein led the country through a one-party state using authoritarian and repressive tactics to maintain power.
2: She, in fact, speaks of being conflicted about whether she would support or not that invasion that happened. She was one of those people who felt the regime had done so much damage to her and her family. She lost an uncle to that, and she couldn't come to terms to engage with the country as her own. She didn't feel home within that space. After the regime, it changed. Instead of them now knowing that one source of harassment, it became an amplified version of different types of harassment.
1: During the sectarian conflict, to avoid being caught up in clashes, many families in Baghdad were forced to leave their homes and relocate to single sect neighbourhoods, even when they were of mixed backgrounds. Zainab's map tells of Zainab's story during these years of sectarianism.
2: She talked about this absolute sheer theatre of violence that happened in Baghdad from 2003 up until the time they left, including the sectarian violence, which she felt even drained the entire city from any form of social relations, belonging, sense of being, anything.
1: Zainab's map shows arrows crisscrossing Baghdad into Lebanon and a fourth arrow into the US, I asked Sana what story these arrows and images tell us about Zainab.
2: She speaks of this moment where she opened the outside gate to the street and she saw what she described as an Afghani, someone with a long dress and trousers underneath holding a machine gun, who saw her peeking through the gate. And she said he obviously knew Amriya was Shia dominated part of the city, Yet he spared her the bullet, and he asked her to go in. And we engaged with that space of how that gate became that space that protected her, yet at the same time potentially have exposed her, both both at the same time. So her map shows the places of mobility that she's gone through over the years between 2003 and 2008 until she left. She went then to Lebanon, thinking that this is where they're going to settle but then ended up applying for a a refugee humanitarian visa to the states and ended up in texas so that is zenith's story So i was saying to her do you feel refuge in any part of baghdad and she said no not even in my grandmother's house. She said that is where my uncle got taken from overnight. And it's a place of trauma for us. It's not a place of refuge. She says her house in Amriyeh, is also a place. It got hit with a bomb when there was a lot of fighting between 2004 and 2006. So this is the beginnings of the sectarian violence. And part of their house was destroyed. And she said, I can't say to you that my home was a space of refuge. There is a bit of her map that also engages with the South because That is when her dad was taken by the previous regime, by the Saddam regime, because he swore at Saddam in one of the hospitals down in the south. So she was saying everywhere we've been, there is this violence. There is this association with trauma that hasn't left us until we left the country.
1: That's really interesting. And it resonates very well with not just myself, but I think with so many other Iraqis from Baghdad, just how the city becomes... A marker of violence and they're not all from the same period and they're not all from the same people but they're from different regimes different invasions different wars and so what you have is this textured map of layers of violence Zaineb's map also shows a stack of books which sana told me are the books of Zaineb's father which she'd found refuge in during the years of violence
2: as i was doing the research For the book, one of the things that I found, people find refuge in all kinds and sorts of things. And the material objects, which actually meant a lot for a lot of people, had begun to take this shape of a space of their own, that does give a sense of refuge to people. The fine edge between trauma and refuge is so thin, and it could tip in any side. And this is what I was mainly interested in, in any of the stories that I've discussed in the book.
1: Yeah, I understand what you mean about that fine edge, because Zainab's father was, on one hand, taken away by the previous regime, and so she associated the house with that. But at the same time, there was a space within that, traumatic space, that still gave her a refuge. That's very beautiful, I think.
2: Yes, and she had gone back 15 years after she left the country. So she left in 2008. She went back to Baghdad, engaging this time through her research with the city. And she found this incredible kind of sense of belonging that had been hidden and started to surface. And she speaks about Baghdad and she says, her. And she says, I'm no longer angry with her for not Loving me the way that I was expecting. I'm no longer upset with her. I'm upset for her, you know, for all of the pain and the checkpoints and the bombs and the car explosions and all of this that happened to her. And I kind of felt this is a true sense of homing, which is a phrase that is used in sociology. And I love that phrase. It means connecting back with this idea of home after you've left home for so many years and had this estrangement with a place that once potentially could have been home.
1: Let's move on to someone outside of Baghdad because you've looked at people across the country and I wanted to talk to you about one of the other people that you spoke to. Can you tell us about them?
2: This is Ali Barudi. baroudi from Mosul. Ali is a photojournalist, expert on Mosul. He's also a translator and an academic at the Department of Translation, Mosul University, and currently resides in Mosul. He's definitely not leaving by the look of it. He absolutely loves the place.
1: Mosul is a city in northern Iraq located around 400 kilometres north of Baghdad. It is the second largest city in Iraq.
2: Mosul didn't have Hardly anything happening to it during the 2003 invasion. But what Mosul suffered from is the lawlessness that happened afterwards with the looting that kicked off after the fall of the regime, which happened incredibly quickly after the first few weeks of invasion. But then the worst brunt of the violence happened in 2014 during the ISIS invasion. That hit them more.
1: ISIS, also known as the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, or the Islamic State, emerged in Iraq in 2013 and later expanded into Syria. The terrorist group seized large swaths of territory in both countries and established a self-proclaimed caliphate, including in Mosul. The group's brutal rule over the city had a significant impact on the lives of its residents and lasted until July 2017, when Iraqi security forces were finally able to liberate the city from ISIS rule. The visual that Sana created for Ali shows a map of Mosul, the façade of a home dotted by bullet points, a fragment of a carpet and, at the bottom, a line of homes utterly destroyed.
2: And he calls his map a homage to home, which I also love, because they had to leave it for the first time. They had to leave the house because they were evacuated, and they went to live with his cousin. They then moved again to have to live with his aunt. When he went back to the house, he found it incredibly wrecked. So it was occupied by ISIS, used... It wasn't hit directly or bombed or anything... But he said they literally absolutely fiddled with every single little thing inside the house. Everything had their scent, the mess written all over it. So he needed to gut the entire thing and reinstate what he knew what home is and what he felt that home is. And then they returned back to it with his mum and dad.
1: When the US invaded Iraq in 2003, people had no access to mobile phones or video cameras as a result of the dictatorship and the UN sanctions. By the time ISIS occupied the country in 2013, this had changed and many Iraqis, including Ali, began documenting their experience of the violence on camera.
2: He had his phone and he absolutely documented everything. So he has these streams of incredibly traumatic moments where he is walking through his house But you can hear, so he's not talking. He's only just showing the camera and what's going on. But you can hear the crushing glass under his feet. And you can hear the wreckage, basically, of the leftover building. And I find this incredibly powerful because I felt that he relived the trauma several times. Once when it already happened and his window got hit and his brother nearly died. And then when he had to leave the house and then when he had to go back, to clear all of this mess and redo it to have the family back. And that is what his map focused on. So you will see in the corner of the map, there is his wind-crushed glass, his bed. His map certainly engaged with the familiar that becomes unfamiliar and then becomes familiar back again. And all of that trauma that kept on moving from being a space that is of violence to then become a space of refuge that, for me, I found incredibly compelling.
1: I think it's really impressive just how someone has been through what a city like Mosul has been through throughout the sectarian strife and then later on the ISIS takeover, that they are still able to somehow make peace with that and fall in love with their city again, in spite of the destruction and the, the violence. Let's go down to the south let's talk about Ja'far who is from Babylon.
2: Professor Ja'far Jotha is a geo-archaeologist at the University of Qadisiyah. Ja'far is originally from Babylon but in 2003 Ja'far was only a master's student in Baghdad University in geology. He was doing his master's in a student accommodation in Baghdad and His mom called him and said, you're going to have to come back right now. I'm not letting you stay in Baghdad. So he got the first way out through a car, got a friend and managed to get out. He comes from a city called Al-Qasim, which is in Babylon. And a lot of people don't understand where this is. They think that it's just this world heritage site (laughs) that is the old ancient Babylon. Babylon is amazingly big, the province itself, because it stretches between the south of Baghdad and it really sits nested nicely between the two rivers, Euphrates and the Tigris. So you've got marshes on both sides.
1: The Iraqi marshes, also known as the Mesopotamian marshes, are a wetland area located in southern Iraq, near the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. During the invasion, Ja'far's family took refuge on a farm they own on these marshes.
2: They lived there for quite some time because the invasion followed by the fall of the regime meant that there were troops on the ground and they took that route from the south of Iraq into Baghdad through Babylon. So he said we started to see a lot of other people coming from different parts of the country. And he said people started to take refuge in mud houses near the marshes. Those are derelict kind of old buildings that are not used for anything other than they're basically staying in the landscape as ruins in a way. But people opened them up and started living in them. All of that time, he said, we were... We were feeling still in control because we knew the marshes really well. We knew that if something happened, we know that the marshes had our back before, during the Saddam regime, and it will have our backs now.
1: After the 1991 Gulf War, a rebellion broke out in southern Iraq against Saddam Hussein's regime. In response, Saddam launched a brutal crackdown against the rebels and their families, and many people fled to the marshes to seek refuge from the violence and persecution. When the sectarian conflict broke out in 2006, many Iraqis from the south, but also from around Baghdad, fled to the marshes to escape the violence. Sana says, unlike before, though, this time people brought the conflict with them. And so the marshes didn't serve as a safe refuge in the same way they did previously.
2: And he said it became incredibly busy. He said we witnessed a number of people coming in from different parts of the country. So he said, all of our cards got thrown in the air. And these places at once were places of refuge, became, again, places of violence, places that we couldn't trust, places that we had a lot of doubt in engaging with. You see, we, pre- we are preparing to move at any time, to be attacked at any time. We even became agile not only in our movement, but also in our thinking about how to protect our families.
1: Jafar's map includes an image of some kind of tool made of wooden stone.
2: So this is the tool, an ancient tool, that people used to use to hit on the seeds for wheat, to crush the wheat so that they can make bread. So it's a very basic way of grinding flour. And he was telling me how... A return back after 2003, because of the lack of electricity and because of the lack of proper infrastructure, a lot of people started to return back to ways that they have done in the past, for example, using the clay ovens. To make the bread, storing things in, you know, we call the hib, which is the storing water in cool kind of mud, clay. So it's like the flip side to the trauma that they started to engage with these things that are culturally Potentially forgotten or not used for quite some time, just like the mud houses in exactly the same way. And I saw that with stories that came from Mosul as well. And in exactly the same way, people talk about using those objects that became redundant after electricity, but they came back to life.
1: Really what you're describing with the book and the stories, the interviews that you've done, and the way you're visualizing them is just how people didn't just have to live with the aftermath of the invasion immediately after, but how over the years, over decades, they've created different routes and different forms of refuge. What do you hope that people will get out of the exhibition and the book when it's coming out later next year?
2: I should really say that the whole thing, the project, the book, the exhibition, the website that is going to also appear on the eve of the 20th anniversary are all a homage to Iraq and all Iraqis still with us and those who have lost their lives. I doubt there is one house in Iraq that hasn't lost a person that is dear to them. I think these stories and memories and traumas that have certainly only appeared for a very brief moment under the spotlight have been forgotten for a very long time. And I'm thinking that Potentially, this will bring back a focus on Iraq for a bit, just for people to understand what has become of a country after 20 years of invasion and traumas.
0: We often follow coverage of wars and displacement and conflict through news media, and then we kind of move on and and forget about it. What we don't seem to remember is that the people who lived through it still carry the embodied memory of the conflict with them.
1: Yeah, you're right. And that's exactly what Sana wanted to show with this project. It wasn't just the day of the invasion that we as Iraqis felt. The pain but there's been so much trauma over and over again and this is exactly what she wanted to show with the kinds of maps that she's created.
0: So much trauma, so many stories, so many memories and I can imagine that there are different versions of events too.
1: Yeah absolutely of course my story is very different to Ja'far's or Zeynep's story. In this case I don't think that our stories contradict each other but there are definitely people who identify with a different version of events. And in that case, there's conflict. And so I reached out to someone who's been working to collect these stories from different people and has been looking at how people are trying to stitch their country back together.
3: My name is Ina Rudolf. I am a senior research fellow at the International Centre for the Study of Radicalization, and also a postdoctoral research fellow at the Centre for the Study of Divided Societies and the War Studies Department of King's College London. Currently, within my postdoc research, I am analyzing identity politics, mobilization of violent memories in, in conflict affected borderlands.
1: Inna specializes in her work on conflict resolution, peace building, and political Islam. As part of her research, she started interviewing Iraqis to understand how communities are engaging with the narratives around the decades of conflict.
3: We are trying to identify what kind of narratives are currently dominating the public discourse, how things are being remembered, but also like which events are being suppressed, what's the role of the built environments, and how can, let's say, a more human encounter and a more engaging discussion with different local communities, with representatives, of different segments of this quad dynamic social fabric can pave the path for reconciliation, but also for improving social cohesion.
1: Inna began interviewing people for this project in 2018. You've studied Iraq and you've looked at various groups. Can you describe the political and social situation there a little bit?
3: So when I started conducting the interviews, it was a very charged political context. You had this euphoria around like the territorial defeat of the Islamic State, people were preparing for the elections, especially like the Iraqi population was really looking forward to seeing political leaders that are motivated to fight corruption, to improve on the provision of welfare services, and also to deal with multi-layered challenges be it on the environmental front or on the front of diversifying the Iraqi energy sector etc. And then the conditions started deteriorating and we saw I think like the most serious manifestation of this disillusionment was with the eruption of the Tishreen protest movement.
1: The Tishreen protests, Arabic for October, were a series of nationwide protests that took place from October 2019 onwards. They were driven by discontent over government corruption, high unemployment, inadequate public services and the sectarian political system that has been in place since 2006.
3: The straw just broke the camel's back and people started really demanding a homeland, a state where they feel represented, a state to which they feel they can belong as equal citizens, a state where they do not have just to rely on their ethnic or sectarian representatives in the halls of parliaments to get things done or to resolve certain issues, but a political class that's patriotically motivated, that takes them seriously. Then another moment of optimism, there was like the amendments of the electoral law, we witness another round of elections. But then again, like we saw how deep-seated the majority of those challenges are and how difficult it is actually like to dismantle the system.
1: The protests were eventually suppressed by the Iraqi government's COVID-19 pandemic measures, as well as targeted crackdowns, which killed over 500 protesters and injured more than 15,000.
3: And therefore, the majority of The most relevant questions remain about like feelings of belonging, feelings of alienation. How do people perceive of the role of the state? How do people perceive of the role of ruling elites?
1: And so what did you find 20 years after the invasion? How do people perceive their own position in Iraqi society? What have people told you in the interviews?
3: We spoke a lot about feelings of alienation, of disillusionment, of lack of trust when it comes to the role of ruling elites, to the way things like resources are being redistributed in Baghdad. But on the positive side, we've witnessed a lot of examples and illustrations of resilience. There is a lot of Optimism in youth-driven civil society initiatives. Uh, whenever we were discussing the reconstruction process, most interviewees underlines the positive impact of these locally-driven efforts. And what we could see is that this catastrophic episode that people had to live through following 2014 had motivated them even more to defend what's at stake, like to protect this multicultural legacy that they feel part of their own identity and to vaccinate themselves, uh, to vaccinate their children against populist extremist ideas Another positive sign is local interest, like in, in remembrance, in like the establishment of memorials. And I would say specifically like at the premises of Mosul University, a very engaging debate between students from different communities, Yazidis, Sunni, Maslawis, people even like un- university students like coming from the Iraqi South. And this realization that different communities were all affected by the savagery of ISIS. And my personal hope is that such human encounters can really pave the way or provide an opportunity to bridge all of these competing victimhoods and to prevent, let's say, feelings of revenge from resurfacing. And actors like to exploit like the feelings of victims to antagonize communities against each other. So this is on the positive note from the field work.
1: Some of your work also looks at the question of mistrust between different communities. And I wanted to understand from you why is mistrust an issue? Why is that an aspect of Iraqi society?
3: What we found out is that like projects that try to bring individuals together at a human level for those individuals to perceive each other again as humans, as Iraqis that were maybe differently affected, but still like both affected from the violence that can then like open the door at a later stage for a more Painful sharing of who went through what. And I think, like, one of the most critical approaches that seeks to prevent the manifestation of such resentments and prejudices and stereotypes is basically like to tell the stories of individuals who, for example, were not able to leave the city, like those who had to stay back because they had elderly parents that they could not flee the city with. And what was their perception of resistance, of resilience. And in our interviews, we were also trying to discuss with individuals, like, what's their perception of how these sites of dark heritage, sites of traumatic violence should be treated, like, should be perhaps transformed into memorials or not. And even there, like, you see so much controversy. Like, on the one hand, some of the interviews had argued that all signs of the destruction should be abolished because... They are fearful of malign political actors like using them the feelings of victims to antagonize communities, to pit communities against each other, to exploit feelings of injustice. Then others have argued that signs of the destruction, specifically on building, even if, like the building is to be restored, that certain signs of the destruction should be preserved, like to serve as a reminder as a historical witness. To the ugliness of those crimes and to vaccinate other generations against these brutal extremist narratives that had destroyed this social cohesion of the city. So I think it's like very much trying to find to identify an incremental path towards healing and recovery.
1: Inna says it's important that ongoing conversations stay focused on personal experiences
3: All of our interview findings have pointed at the importance of avoiding too much ambitious terms like peace building, reconciliation. Like maybe we're not just there yet. Maybe one should now focus with the tools that are now present to enable conversations, to explore people's dispositions, to share their own experiences, perceptions, of history and to identify a common ground. Even like from sharing from one of the interviews, some participants pointed to the importance of actually addressing the mass graves. And some have argued that perhaps the identification of the DNA of the corpses in some of those graves help shed like the misperception that Sunni Muslims were not equally affected by the savagery of ISIS. These are just demonstrations that each community wants its own victimhood to be heard understood and acknowledged and the more they feel that they are pushed into one category or like that their own suffering is not being taken seriously by either by their counterparts by their co-nationalists or by the iraqi government the more feelings of alienation are likely to progress
1: do you find that people are already engaging in some kind of rebuilding of trust with other communities?
3: There have been like excellent examples by how this can be conducted at a very local, grassroots, non-sensationalist level. And the best practices come from Iraqis who know the local context, who are familiar with the psychology of those spaces of those contested environments. There have been several rounds of dialogues, mediations between Christian and Shabak communities. There have been mediations and negotiations between Yazidi and Arab tribal communities. There is a lot of interest of young people, uh, especially young activists like from within the Tishreen movement. Yeah to close the door and to prevent sect-coded narratives, to divide them and like to antagonize them against their co nationalists. So I think there is much more resistance like from the young population to become hostage of such divisive narratives.
1: Based on the interviews she's done, Inna says what many Iraqis are demanding is to be able to participate in their society and actively shape their future.
3: When we conducted the interviews with residents of Mosul and we asked the question, what was, in your opinion, the golden period for the city and for society? Some of them, especially some young Iraqis, answered in the immediate months following the fall of the regime, because there was this genuine hope that they would have a real chance at, like building democratic decision-making procedures of having a more participation of civil society in the way Iraq's affairs are being managed. And what they were not prepared for was for this very divisive narrative that followed the process of debatification, the way it was managed, the way it was also communicated, and the way it ended up dividing people in alleged Former supporters of the Bath regime and the pillars of the new ruling class. So I think this wounds at some point have to be addressed, have to be digested, and a new foundation has to be built that moves away from finger pointing and from stigmatizing like whole communities, like for having lived through a specific historical moment and not having resisted or having resisted not in the right manner in the perspective of their co-nationalists or in, from the perspective of those who are currently in power.
1: She says the next step is for conversations to start thinking about how the country's history will be told to Iraq's future generations.
3: Where will they learn about, let's say, the Iraq invasion, like which history chapter would be the one that Sticks in their mind? Would it be the story told to them, like by their parents, by their grandparents? Would it be the portrayal of the war as retold by their history teachers? Would it be what they hear in the media and what kind of is part of the dominant discourse?
1: That's it for this episode. Thanks to the academics we spoke to this week, Sana Morani and Inna Rudolf. And thank you to Emily Mayarding, who we also spoke to for this episode.
0: You can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com or email us podcast at theconversation.com. If you like what we do, please support our podcast and the conversation more broadly by going to donate.theconversation.com.
1: This episode of The Conversation Weekly was produced and written by me, Mend Mariwani, and I'm also the show's executive producer. Sound design was by Eloise Stevens, and our theme music is by Nita Sao. Stephen Khan is our global executive editor. Alice Mason runs our social media, and Soraya Nandi does our transcripts.
0: And I'm Nihal Al-Hadi. Thanks for listening. <laughs>